Uh, let's pray. Let's uh, pray for no more technical fiascos. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance that we have to open your word and uh, put ourselves in its path. And I pray that uh, you will do your work this morning, uh, not just uh, through me preaching, uh, but that whatever I say that's not worth remembering will be forgotten. But whatever I say that is of you and uh, for your purposes will sink deep into our souls. It's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen. All right. My name is Joshua, and it is uh, my privilege to be back in the pulpit here. I'm one of the elders here at Prairie View, and um, it's a, a great privilege to be back. I'd like to thank Ben for his tremendous work during the midweek update, uh, where he raised the bar and set expectations so high that anybody who heard him talking about how gifted I was as a preacher uh, would recognize that if it was even half true, that it wouldn't have gone five years without uh, me having the chance to preach. So don't ever let Ben sell you a used car. Now, uh, if... And in truth, having Zach around to preach a half dozen times a year is really, really beneficial, even if it does make the elder sermon a little more rare. We do like to have the elders preach from time to time, uh, not just for variety, but uh, for instance, last Thanksgiving, we had Rick give a wonderful and personal uh, message. Also, an elder that's a volunteer can get away with saying some things uh, that maybe a staff person couldn't. We have a little more latitude, as you'll see as we go on. Now, I'm always thinking about what my next sermon is going to be, because I don't always think it's going to be five years away. And uh, so for a long time, I was thinking I was going to preach on forgiveness. And that was just rolling around in my head, and it just kept on not happening. And uh, eventually, I had to conclude that God didn't think I was ready to preach on forgiveness. Probably means I have more to learn about forgiveness, which sounds super exciting. But uh, I had other possibilities in mind as well. But Erin had an idea, and she said... How about you preach a sermon to encourage Pastor Ben or how to encourage Pastor Ben? Because he's been here seven going on eight years and it's been a rough year for all pastors. How about you do something helpful, Joshua? And, uh, well, she calls me Josh, not Joshua. Sorry. But, uh, and, and the, when I first heard that idea, I thought, no, come on. I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. If you think it's so important, you do something yourself. And the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. What do I know about encouraging a pastor? And that's just not really you know, persuading him he's doing a good job. That's I'm not going to do that, no. But then uh, I, I couldn't really do it without sounding like I was lecturing you people and, and yelling at you and not in a good way. But then finally, inspiration came. What if instead of trying to encourage him, we approach it from the other side? Identify a bunch of really discouraging things and, and name them and point them out and then just try to avoid those things. Maybe I'm not super encouraging, but if I can avoid making things worse, that could be helpful, perhaps. You know, shepherding a congregation is always going to be hard work. You know, Zach's never more than a month away from a sermon. Ben's got to get up here almost every week, you know, saving souls and serving sinners and living out the vision of the church. And sometimes, Looking at it from the outside, uh, observing them, it seems like sometimes a lot of their best time and energy can kind of get devoted to situations that didn't have to be the way they were. Situations that could have been resolved easily early on, but just were allowed to sit and fester and then turned into this problem. Now, if you have a problem or even a problem, don't let that stop you from going to an elder or a pastor for help. But maybe we could all do a better job doing the things we're supposed to be doing if we didn't keep on uh, shooting ourselves in the foot, as it were. Now, 
We know how this works in other aspects of our life. If you're a student and you've got a test in the morning, then you're not going to get a good grade if you're playing Mario Kart at midnight the night before. And if you uh, finally get that first date that you want, you're not going to get a second date if you talk with your mouth full. And uh, you're not going to get your weight back into line if you keep on stuffing your face with peanut M&Ms, for example. And you're never going to hear who's a good boy if you bite the hand that feeds you. You're not going to win a lot of close football games if you give up a half dozen penalties in the fourth quarter, and you'll never be in any close football games if you let all your quarterbacks get exposed to COVID and you have to start uh, somebody else entirely. So good luck, Denver. We will never be able to do anything that's worth doing and worth doing well if we're sabotaging ourselves along the way. And as a church, we're never going to be able to be the church God wants us to be, making devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus if we're making our own lives harder and making our pastor's lives harder. If that one sheep had just stayed in the pen, everybody could have had a good night's sleep. So I put together a list of eight practices, eight practices that if you do several of these, you're probably a bad church member. Now, all of us being sinners, we're all going to be doing some of these from time to time, but none of these should be our way of life, our consistent practice. So today we're going to start with reading two passages up front. This is not a sermon on Hebrews 13. We did that last year. And it's not a sermon on 2 Peter 1 either. We're going to read the passages to set the table, as it were. And uh, by this point in the book of Hebrews, it's a long, rich, dense book. And this is the last 10 verses. And the author slips this in at the end, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Don't sign up for eldership if you're not prepared to answer to God for your work. Continuing in verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, on a different day, we would explore, you know, does he mean what we mean when he says obey and submit? And how do we spark this joy? But today is all about the groaning. The word means to struggle under a burden. Don't be burdensome for your leaders, because how is that of any help to anybody? It's, it's bad for you because you've got all these bad and sinful habits, and it hurts them because it's really demoralizing. And then later, it hurts you when it all blows up in your face, and the people who are supposed to be the spiritual frontline first responders are all worn out because of you. So this is hopefully something that we can avoid. Now, let's flip over to Second Peter chapter 1. For me, that is just four page flips through the book of James and through First Peter, over to Second Peter, chapter 1. And we're going to take a peek at verse 8. Uh, this is part of what Zach read for us earlier. If these qualities, whatever they are, Peter's going to give us these qualities, if they are... 8, there you are. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be nice to invest a lot of effort in a project and see it's working. I'm being fruitful. I'm being effective. I'm helping. And none of us wants to be, hopefully, hopefully none of us wants to be ineffective or unfruitful or or burdensome. So we're going to look at my eight list of things to avoid and, and then the Apostle Peter's list of eight things to nurture. And the first one on our list, don't let God's word have any weight in your life. Only open your Bible sporadically. Maybe only on a Sunday morning. Maybe not even then. 
when you do read, just read to get through it and get it over with. Don't treat it like it actually matters. Definitely don't let it confront you or challenge you or make you feel in any way uncomfortable. Now, we all have many things in our life that we uh, devote our time and energy to, things that have priority and influence, things that we give weight to because they have weight, because they matter. And big picture stuff like relationships and, and goals, hobbies, vocation, anything that competes for your attention. We don't get to control all of those things, but we do get to have some control over a lot of them. And obviously, we don't want to be nurturing bad influences in our life. We know that's not a good idea, but sometimes we're not good at recognizing when we have a, a neutral thing or even a good thing that is growing beyond the proper space that should be allotted for it. Now, anything could get lopsided in your life, even, even good things, a parent relationship or in a year like this, the pursuit of health and safety, uh, a political cause, your own child, one of their relationships, some dream that you have for the future. And these are all good things that could crowd out and push out others. We don't want to just thoughtlessly default to caring about what other people who might not even care for us think that we ought to care about. So to use a couple of uh, buzzwords, we want to be intentional or mindful about what we give weight to in our life. So one way to explore this is to ask yourself, what makes me afraid? Or, on the other side, what makes me really, really motivated? And we have some influence over what those things are in our life. And if a, uh, a political pundit or a social media antagonist or, or even silly stuff like the best way to cook a turkey or put up Christmas decorations or Grey's Anatomy, if that stuff gets you more fired up than anything that God could hold a candle to, then that is not good. Now, God's word claims if you put him first, it's not that everything else gets excluded, but everything else gets put in the right order that it ought to be in. Now, you look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't do these three dumb things, but what he is all about is God's ways. Night and day, that is what he is after. Help me live my life your way, whatever it is I'm doing. And if you're not looking to God's word to order your life, your life will be out of order. So that's one down. The second one on our list flows straight out of that. Make major life choices without thinking about the spiritual consequences. If the previous point was about the day in and day out of life, this one is about the major fork in the road moment of decision. Do I quit my job and look for something else? Is this relationship going anywhere? Uh, is, is this um, the right major for me? If I take on this debt, is it going to give us Opportunity, or is it going to end up strangling our lives for, for years to come? What neighborhood should we live in? Is there a halfway decent church in the town that we're looking at moving to? Sometimes those questions are easy and straightforward, but other times they're much more complicated, and there's uh, different angles to consider and, and trade-offs and things that aren't so straightforward. Um, as usual, God's Word will help you organize and rank the things that ought to matter to us. And it can also help us know when there's not some sort of black letter scriptural principle that has to be followed and we have the opportunity to follow our conscience or, or even personal preference and how to live in the uh, freedom of, of living that way and the confidence rather than being filled with second guessing and anxiety that somehow we're, we're grouping stuff up. Third one is like that and it's a coin with two sides and I call this coin the don't let anyone in coin. So on the one side, uh, don't let anyone get close enough to you 
that they can tell you what you need to hear. We all need people in our lives that can tell us, you know, you're mistaken, you're out of line, you being foolish or hold still while I give you a kick in the pants, if that's what it takes. Uh, we can all, uh, and, and, and we'll have those people that we listen to because we know that they care about us and they have our best interests in mind and we trust them. And we can all look to uh, the very highest levels of business or sports or entertainment or government and see that things can get really dicey when nobody can say no to the boss. And that's a problem. And it's easy to see up there, but we can serve as our own gatekeepers too, pushing out friends, family, small groups that ought to have our best interests in mind and only hearing what we want to hear. Now, the other side of that coin is don't let anyone in. Don't let anyone get close enough so that they can help you when you are hurting, when you're suffering, or when you're struggling or even floundering and everything's falling apart. Now, the church can be part of the problem here because um, if somebody opens up and says, wow, I am in a dry season and where the heck is God? And somebody well-meaning hopefully comes along and says, well, have you tried praying harder and having better faith and confessing all known sin? And here's some 10 spiritual disciplines for you. It can be easier just to keep your mouth shut, pretend, self-isolate, and don't let anybody know, even if everything's all falling apart. And it makes us grieved, sad, as church leaders to hear that somebody has been struggling for so long alone, and we want to be part of that process early on rather than deep down the road. So how do you get this coin out of your pocket? You cultivate relationships, starting with the ones that you have. Now, loneliness and isolation are real, especially this year. So maybe this is something that's already obvious and already on your mind that, hey, I need friends. I need to invest in the relationships that I have that are wholesome, make it easy for me to follow Jesus and avoid that uh, temptation to go it alone. Now, your elders and pastors would love to join you early in this process, not at the end. Just like when we're making major life decisions, uh, go to your elders and pastors. Because the guys in that elder room, together with their wives, uh, don't just have you know, wisdom, but they have actual like expertise. And they, they know things, and there's insight, and even sometimes, on some days, some measure of intelligence. And nobody likes to wade into a disaster that could have been avoided. So seek them out before rather than after. Proverbs 15 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Now, that's labeled as a proverb, not a promise, because that's just the way God designed things to work. Fourth up, fight, bicker, squabble, and divide over what will be forgotten in a week or a year or a century. If there's something that we are not going to be talking about in heaven, then it might not be worth hurting somebody or losing somebody over in the present. And we keep coming back to giving weight to what is the scriptures. And this book will help us figure out what are the things that we have to agree on as a family or as a church? What are the things that we cannot agree with? Or what are the things that we can just leave up to uh, private conviction and personal preference? Now, the cheap and easy example is the siding on the church. Maybe you love it, maybe you hate it, maybe you didn't even notice, and maybe someday it'll even be finished, hopefully. They seem to have gotten stuck on the back. But, um, you know, whatever. It keeps the building dry. It's not something worth fighting about. Now, a more charged example, was there a candidate in the presidential election three and a half weeks ago that a Christian ought to have or must not have voted for? Now, there are seven people in this room, and I know for sure there are at least... 
three people that got voted for out of the seven of us. And I imagine there are two more voting options out of the people that might be watching right now. So some of those issues are extremely serious and very compelling, but it matters way more why you cast your vote the way you did than who you voted for. And is that the sort of thing we want to separate over? Maybe. It depends. An issue would have to be really serious. But there's good reasons and bad reasons for voting for every which candidate. Uh, so maybe we need to keep an eternal perspective. This book will help us know and understand what's worth separating over. Paul wrote to the Corinthians at an even more controversial time, and he said this. We have not made use of this right. Talking about a right he had as the uh, planter of a church and the apostle. We've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And it is culturally unthinkable in our day to not stand up for your rights and not uh, to be able to, to set aside your rights, to say, I could do this, I have the right to do this, but I'm not going to because I have something higher that I value than just the exercise of my own rights. But if you love to get all up in arms over something that's temporary, that's going to be a problem, not just in the church, but in your whole life. Halfway there, bad idea number five. Be surprised, dismayed, and discouraged when all kinds of trials, hardships, suffering, and opposition come your way. What's more, expect that Christ will make your life easier and more smooth, and that all will be well if you live a good life. Now, this is what Joe referenced a little bit earlier, that it goes against the grain of our understanding of the way things ought to work. We think make good choices, get good outcomes, make bad choices, get bad outcomes. So if you're getting a bad outcome, then obviously you must have done something wrong, and that tempts us to hide and to pretend and to, again, self-isolate. But we know from Job through Jesus and beyond that Christians will suffer the same misfortunes that everybody experiences in this world, plus all the extra sacrifices and hardships that come from following Christ. So in those time periods, and they will come, don't isolate. Draw near to God through his word and through his people. Remember that God is in control and he's always at work and he knows what he's doing. James 1 and Romans 5 and Romans 8 tell us to expect that God will use everything in our life and even bring extra trouble into our lives for his great purpose of making us more like Jesus. Remember, we want to be not ineffective, not unfruitful, not burdensome, but more and more like Jesus. And if you're going through it now, if this is an awful season for you, then remember, he knows what he's doing and he can be trusted, which is not to say it's not hard. It is hard. I've been through those seasons. It's hard. But knowing that God knows what he's doing and he can be trusted is something that I've uh, repeated to myself many, many times. And if you're not going through it right now, if this is for whatever reason a smooth time of year for you, then uh, remember it for when the time does come so that you won't be shocked and overwhelmed when it happens. Uh, A different book to the Corinthians. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts his people through his people, and that's what we can do for each other. That is some hard-earned usefulness and fruitfulness. 
Number six out of eight. Another one that's two sides of the coin. And Aaron had to really help me struggle to understand what I wanted to say here. So hopefully I've got it and I can communicate it. It pertains to uh, time. So, of course, it's going to be confusing. Strive so hard for your future on earth to the neglect of the present. But also, at the same time, and focus so hard on this life that you're neglecting eternity. So there's a way to be ineffective and unfruitful by always looking just over the horizon into next year or beyond uh, to the neglect of the present, you know, classic workaholism. But uh, there's a much more subtle way to do this, and that is the, uh, the soothing lie that we tell ourselves that things will be better when. Now, things are tough now, but once I get my big break. Things are tough now, but once I land that account and make the next sale, things will be better then. Uh, things are tough now, but once I graduate. You know, things are really rough now, but once these kids get into school, or maybe once this virtual school gets back to real school. Things are tough now, but once school gets out for the season, or you know, once these kids get out of the house. Things are tough now, but once the lockdown is over, once we have a vaccine, once we have a new administration, things will be better then. We tell ourselves that real life is about to begin, and we're just stuck in pre-production right now. That our life is about to take off, and we're just chilling in the departure lounge. No, this is the life that we're living right here and now. And it's not a setup for the next stage. This is the stage that we're living in as we move towards Eternity, And that's the other side of the coin. Don't look deep into your future on earth. Look deep into your future in heaven. Like Zach said, we're looking forward to a better day. And it's not when we retire to Florida. Let eternity, not next year or retirement, guide your choices. Now, if you like your slogans in Latin, then we say simultaneously, we have to say, uh, carpe diem, seize the day, this day, the day that the Lord has given us, but at the same time, quorum deo. Live your life before the face of God. Be so heavenly minded that you do amazing earthly good. Paul wrote to the Philippians from prison, and it wasn't clear to him at the time whether he was going to uh, get the potential execution that he was facing or whether he was going to be released. And in chapter one, he sort of has this weird back and forth with himself, and he ends up settling on this. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Closing in on the uh, end of our list, this is number seven out of eight of the bad practices. Gripe about other people's hard decisions. And if you disagree with them, assume that they are wrong, ignorant, and malevolent with evil intent. And we're accustomed to seeing this in politics. And just because somebody supports the other guy or the other party doesn't mean that they uh, hate our nation or that they hate humanity, whatever. But really, it goes in every sphere of life, including the church. People usually do the best they can with what they've got. And hopefully sermons like this and every sermon that we give will help us think a little more biblically about doing the best we can with what we truly have. And if somebody makes a decision that you think is really wrong, then extend a little 
grace and uh, some benefit of the doubt. Try to see it their way. Maybe they know things that you don't. Maybe they have responsibilities that you don't have. Acknowledge your own limitations. Your brother or sister in Christ is probably not half the moron that you think they are. And hopefully you're not half the moron that they suspect either. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Drop the double standard and imagine things the other way around. Now, the final one is this. An excellent way to demoralize your pastors. Only show up at church when allowed 20 or 25 times a year. Only give as an afterthought and only make a token attempt at service. And as you do these things, make it seem like you're doing some great favor to the Lord and to his church. At the same time, expect that pastors and their wives are going to be on call 24-7 and that they'll end up doing 90% of the work of the church. Now, you may notice in the sermon title that I put a little asterisk next to church member. And that's because we mean something quite specific when we say a capital M member of Prairie View Christian Church. Now, I could have said congregant, but the word is a little dated. I could have said um, part of the Prairie View family, but there just wasn't room on the screen. So I went with member, um, but we're talking about the sort of little M member that uh, they go to a church, but they're not really in the game. They have a default church they go to when they go, and they show up often enough that people know who they are, and, and they know their name, and when they're gone for six weeks, they say, hey, what happened? to so-and-so, they don't really miss them because they're not really involved enough. Now, it takes time to find a good church to get involved, to get integrated and assimilated, but eventually it should happen because when you commit to a church, we're committing to the people of the church, not a pastor or the staff or the leaders. Ephesians 4, God furnishes, God provides to the church leaders, he provides the church with leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity. And that is a perpetual project, because God keeps on sending more people into the church, and he keeps on regenerating people, making these baby Christians with their baby Christian messes, which is wonderful, but it takes all of us being fruitful and effective together so that we can continue to do ministry into the future so it'll still be there. And that's not just the pastor's job, either at this church or at any church you might find yourself at down the road. Now, if a pastor is going to serve with perseverance and longevity, uh, he's going to need the same thing that anybody else does. Now, I joked at the start about not knowing how to encourage a pastor, but really it goes the same for anybody. It's not that different. Treat them like a normal human being rather than some sort of elite spiritual professional. Now, Ben and Zach are pretty much both 30-ish guys with a wife and kids and a mortgage and a job, and they're looking at the same 2021 that's pretty murky, just like everybody else. You know, they're practically interchangeable, right? And they're ordinary people, and it's encouraging to them to have us not put them on some sort of pedestal that they don't belong on. And they need friends, and their wives need friends. So reach out to them and acknowledge milestones and express gratitude, even if it's just a sentence at a time. Don't have unreasonable expectations. Honor their wife and kids. Don't gossip. and Respect personal boundaries. The same way you encourage anybody else is how you encourage a pastor. Although in a year like 2020, uh, being a pastor is hard in a church year like this when we can't meet off and on. So certain professions do require extra encouragement. And these eight 
bad practices are a great way to discourage them, to make it harder than it needs to be. So if you recognize yourself in any of these, or you recognize any of these in yourself, either now or in the future, then that's, that's good. It's to be able to identify that and move away from it. Now, Hebrews 13 calls us to act in a way so that they can do their ministry with joy and not with groaning. We spent 20 minutes talking about a lot of different ways that we might be making them groan, acting in a burdensome manner, so that we could identify it, point it out, and avoid those, repent of that. But Peter explores the other side. I lost my place. So we're going back to Second Peter chapter 1, and he uh, explores how can we live so that those around us can serve the Lord with joy. And why should we care? Now this is how Peter starts his letter. Verse 3 and 4. He puts forward some fairly lofty expectations or possibilities about what the Christian life might be like. He almost begs you to ask, how is that even supposed to happen? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's fairly comprehensive. Through the knowledge of him who called us, called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them... You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, that sounds great, whatever it means. We're not preaching this passage. So how do we make this happen? How do we start with our faith, what we believe and know to be true about Jesus Christ, and then grow into life and godliness and glory and excellence and away from corruption and learn to and not just manage, but put to death our own sinful desire. He's going to give us eight things. The same eight things that we've explored from the reverse side. People tell, Peter tells his people at the very end of his life, this is what he tells his people to do. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. You have faith. You're one of God's people. You're part of the body. So supplement that faith with virtue, strong moral character, making decisions God's way. And then supplement that virtue with knowledge, being known, cultivating those relationships that help you know the Lord. And supplement that knowledge with self-control, not giving in to all our selfish desires, but remembering what matters. And supplement your self-control with steadfastness, bearing up under and growing through the trials of life. And supplement steadfastness with godliness, devotion, serving God in the present with eternity in mind and supplement the godliness with brotherly affection having a bit of humility and treating others graciously and supplement brotherly affection with love committing to a local body of believers come hell or high water because both of them will come if these qualities are yours and are increasing they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ now if jesus wasn't God, if he's not Lord and Christ and he didn't die for our sins, then none of this matters at all. And the church is just another charitable organization. And there are better organizations for doing charitable stuff. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, and he did what this book says that he did, and he really is the savior of the world, then his way is the only way. And the way that he chooses to work in this age is through the local church. And we can make that harder on each other, or we can help each other by being effective and fruitful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance that we've had to uh, look at your word. And I pray that 
we won't just be looking for the sake of learning something about Peter, learning something about Hebrews, but learning something about you and learning something about ourselves. And I pray that you will help us understand what's going on inside ourselves. What is it that's driving us? What is it that we're giving weight to? What is it that makes us act the way that we do? And recognize what is good there and, and cultivate that and recognizing what's problem, what's sinful, what's rebellious and putting that to death. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the kind of church where it's easy to get plugged in. It's easy to find a small group. It's easy to um, get to know people and get to know you and that we can be easy on each other as we try to help each other grow more in your likeness for your glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.